friends, welcome back to Redrawing the Bath. And today I have the the special opportunity to to welcome to the show someone who whose words in in other interviews I've heard him in have really impacted me in a way of growing up in a reformed culture where uh, prophetic voices didn't really mean very much. It, they were never really things to take into consideration outside of the ways they pointed to Jesus. But then as I've kind of gone on this journey, it, it's been amazing to see the prophets really come to life and and have wisdom to teach to me now. And And my guest today has really brought a lot of those words to my attention through the through the teachings and, and curriculums that he has to offer. So today, I'd like to welcome to the show Mark Van Steenwick. Mark, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, thanks for having me, Chris. So, Mark, I, I usually like to try to start by asking people what their faith journey has been like. So would you mind just sharing with the audience, for those of us that don't know who you are, just where you've been to where you are now? Uh, where to start? <laughs> the, the, the short version. Um, is uh, I got saved at a fundamentalist Bible camp when I was 14 in rural Minnesota. Uh, came up among the charismatic and Pentecostals in, in rural Minnesota. Got married young, uh, 21 as a you know young evangelical charismatic. And then uh, in my early to mid-20s, 9-11 happened. It freaked mm-hmm. me out to see Christians being excited about war and bloodshed. And I uh, and I turned to to scriptures for com- comfort and solace, as one one does, I guess. And uh, I read the Gospel of Luke, and from the beginning to the end, uh, somewhere in there, I came to this realization. So when I was done reading the Gospel of Luke, I said to myself, "Shit, I think I'm a pacifist." And that was a problematic thing because I was planning on going into the Air Force as a chaplain to pay for seminary. Hmm. So, but then from there it was a slippery slope. Um, yeah. from there it's like, well, if I take Jesus seriously about loving your enemy, I have to go for, for the full meal deal. And I found myself in seminary where I went to an evangelical seminary, Bethel seminary. Uh, I started an intentional community, um, where pretty much our only prime directive as it were, was what if we take Jesus seriously on this stuff? And so it was experimental. We didn't start as an intentional community, it started as an urban church. Became an intentional community, started uh, opening our doors to people in transition, homeless people, and uh, did that for 10 to 15 years. And uh, and through that, even that, I still kept what I would consider a, t- a type of radicalizing that happened because uh, once you start living with people who don't have housing, you start thinking, well, why do I have housing and they don't have housing? And then if you start uh-huh. having... Uh, trans house guests like well what what in my heart I don't want to be exclusionary towards these people but I feel like I have to because the bible what do I do with that so all these questions kept mm-hmm. coming up the more I tuck myself into life and uh, I just kept going uh, deeper <laughs> down the Jesus rabbit hole I guess and then eventually that led to starting the center for prophetic imagination because around the age of 40 after doing hospitality uh, ministry and activism and all kinds of things. Uh, I had basically a mental breakdown because I, I overextended myself. I wasn't, mm. didn't know how to take care of myself in the midst of that. And then I realized how important it was to have support and doing that kind of work, what I would consider the, the Christian life, but other people might consider a, a radical Christian life or a prophetic uh, way of living. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I started the Center for Prophetic Imagination as a way of saying like, look, I didn't have enough mentorship and support and I still need it, but I guess now's the time since I'm middle-aged, technically I'll turn around and try to be that, create a supportive system for people who have a prophetic vocation. So that's the, that's the quick, quick and dirty version of my, my spiritual journey. Mm. No, that's, that, that makes perfect sense. I, I love how you used the slippery slope term that, that so cringeworthy statement, the slippery slope, but I, I feel like you used it in the correct context in the sense that the slippery slope is actually following in the path of Jesus when most people who would look at, at yourself and myself of, I don't know, man, it's just kind of a slippery slope imply it as if it's some type of bad thing that you're no, doing instead, yeah. of, instead of something good and, and following in the path of Jesus. To me, it's and, a good thing. And I, yeah. and I know why people say this, but like I, I had a realization somewhere in there, you know, there's this thing that I feel like some evangelicals do. Some are just like, you know, they don't even try to figure out what stuff in Bible is contextual and which stuff is universal. But then kind of the more open-minded evangelicals try to figure out what stuff in the Bible is just for then and what stuff is for all times. And then I realized there's no way you can ever know that. It's always for then. Hmm. And you always have to discern uh, what's for now. Like you can't, there's no rubric or system. In fact, Jesus talks about the spirit, like the spirit will guide you into all truth. And so I realized in that moment, all there is is slippery slope. It's just how scared you are of it. And if you're scared, you're going to cling on to stuff that you construct because what Jesus promised is I will send my spirit, not I'm going to give you sophisticated tools for biblical scholarship, which I, I mean, I care about that, but that to me isn't, you don't live your life by trying to deduce principles from an ancient text. Oh. You, you, to me, the call of a Christian is to live life based upon discerning the spirit with the help of text interpreted in community. And that's maybe sounds the same to some people, but it's not, it's just not the same thing because you have yeah. to embrace the subjectivity of it all <laughs> in order to really follow Jesus. Yeah. Oh man. Subjectivity. That's a, that's a hard conversation with, with American evangelicalism for sure. Yes. And it's scary. And but like, you know, this objectivity thing hasn't really been working out. So <laughs> no, not, <laughs> not at all. So you, so you mentioned the, the center for, for prophetic imagination and, and I'm interested, I know a little bit about it, but would you mind uh, just telling us a little bit about what it is you do there? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I feel like I always have to make this disclaimer these days because most people know about us because we have a Facebook page that has like, I don't know, 12,000 followers, which isn't, isn't huge unless you're like, it is for a small group like us. So people think we're bigger than we are. Um, and we're, and our memes go everywhere. So people are seeing all these memes. I did all those things. And like, basically the Center for Prophetic Imagination is mostly me working part-time. Uh, mm-hmm. And then we have a board and then I've had some support staff, like quarter-time support staff here and there. But so it, like our output is, is it's modest. It's what a, a half-time person can, well, I work more than that, but I get paid for half-time. And so what I do is, what I do is, you know, I, I do the work of a spiritual director, um, which, you know, I can unpack it a little bit, but so I have a, a number of people I talk to once a month and try to help them discern the spirit in their lives. But then I try to apply that towards like outward, like what's the spirit doing in society? Like how do we discern the spirit and how we act in the world? in a prophetic way. And I do that by 
doing retreats, uh, workshops. Um, you know, I do a lot of these days during this pandemic, there's a lot of, uh, you know, vidcast things and, and stuff like that. We also have done things like um, we have this practice that we've been developing that comes out of the Catholic worker movement, uh, liturgical direct action. Like how do you do a direct action or a protest as a, an act of worship? Hmm. So then how do you think about doing that? Like, so we've tried to find, we've not only done it, but try to like help other people how, learn how to discern it because mostly um, what we see among social justice minded folks um, who are Christian is that they have their Christianity over here in one hand and their spirituality or their uh, politics in another hand, and they kind of slap it together. And it's mm -hmm. not, it doesn't flow out of the same thing usually. Yeah. Uh, Cause we have, we live in a society that separates those and, and or maybe vaguely we know that Jesus loves people. And so we need to serve them. And so we have this kind of service model but it's not very revolutionary. And to me, um, if you if you start smushing those together and more deeply where you see uh, experiencing the presence of Christ inside yourself um, is, you know, kind of an inward spirituality, but seeing Christ in the world among the suffering is kind of an outward discernment and that that's the same, it's the same Christ in and out of you. Yeah. And if you're discerning, uh, if, if you notice that in our society that there's all these stories like you have to be productive in order to be worthwhile as a human being, or, uh, you know, the money is, a you know, you can, you can value, judge the value of something by its price, um, that you have to kill other people to secure freedoms, all these sort of narratives that not only do they exist out there, but they shape your own way of seeing the world. And so that's a spiritual thing. So all of a sudden you start realizing if, if you start tugging at it, you realize spirituality and politics are just, an inward and outward kind of thing. And you can't separate them out. This idea that Christians should be non-political is, is, well, it's stupid. And the idea that somehow politics uh, doesn't shape us spiritually, that's also stupid. So how do we go into the midst of this and kind of a embrace like mystical politics? Like how do we do this stuff in a way that assumes the presence of the spirit guiding us to, uh, fight for liberation, both our own spiritual liberation, but then also the liberation of people who are oppressed and see that all as part of the same movement. So that's kind of what CPI is like, okay, how do we name that? Because you go to mainline churches and they kind of dabble in d democratic politics and they pray half-heartedly. And then you go to evangelical <laughs> churches, I'm stereotyping here. They're all yeah. into it, praise Jesus, but then it's like, you know, damn those illegals, you know, like how does this yeah, I mean, there's got to be a better way of slicing and dicing this. And that's mm -hmm. the prophetic tradition, like where the presence of God is here. And therefore we need to practice justice because mm. love of God and love of neighbor are inextricably linked. Yeah. And that's so, I feel like for me and, and probably, I mean, I don't know for you, for you as well, the, the idea of a, a prophetic tradition it's a it's a it's a newer concept for me i mean i've i've been a a follower of jesus or i mean i don't even know what that what that means anymore uh for for about six years i think six or seven years and and through the majority of that time frame the idea of a prophetic uh tradition 
was almost non-existent until I read um, Abraham Heschel's The Prophets. About oh, yeah, it's a great book, yeah. Oh, it's it's beautiful, uh, about a year or so ago. And so I'm interested, what has your journey been like with the biblical prophets? I mean, it helped. I mean, this is the plus side of coming up among charismatics is because charismatics and Pentecostals still assume that prophets are a thing. Now, they don't mean what I mean anymore. But there's this idea that there's all these different charisms and that if you see something in the Bible, you should be able to see it today. That's kind of a charismatic instinct. Um, mm -hmm. I could go into all the reasons where I disagree and how that looks. But to me, at the very least, I was already open to the idea of prophets being a present tense thing. Mm -hmm. Now, the difference is, is they interpret it the way most of us have learned about prophets, that they were wandering around the desert and then all of a sudden their eyes would roll back into their head and then God would possess them. And all of a sudden they'd be like, thus saith the Lord God of hosts, there's a, a swarm of locusts coming for the city. Whatever, that kind of that yeah. kind of thing. Like, no, I mean, there's mysticism in the, mystic, the prophetic tradition, but it's ultimately about seeing uh, the world through kind of a di divine perception and grieving with the grief of God. And this is what mm -hmm. Walter Brueggemann talks about when he talks about the prophetic uh, tradition is it's divine lament that then spills over, that grief can spill over into rage, but the core of the prophetic uh, vocation is grief, but it's not just their grief, it's they're experiencing the grief of God. And mm -hmm. so, you know, if you, if you start with that and then recognize like, you know, all these prophets in the Hebrew scriptures are seeing devastation and oppression and people turn their back on God. And so God's grief pours out through them and they call people to repentance. And if they don't repent and they keep harming, like desecrating the earth by the, you know, felling the cedars of, of Lebanon, or they start oppressing people, um, they start doing all sorts of horrible things, then that uh, grief spills over into rage and there's judgment. Like that's kind of what you see. And then when you get to Jesus, who uh, called John the Baptist the greatest among the prophets and then received a baptism from him. So he's in, in a way, you could say he's baptized into that tradition, right? Mm. And so you have Jesus continuing that same thing. He's communicating the, the longing and the grief of God. But when it gets to the, you know, this is the cool Christian part, when it comes to the wrath, um, you know, I'm not Calvinist. Jesus didn't receive the wrath of God. Hmm. Uh, I think he exposed it and realized like, no, again, this is where I'm not, I don't believe in biblical inerrancy. I think there, there's all sorts of competing narratives. I think Jesus then <laughs> embodies, takes on the wrath of humanity. Like he becomes, God is the one who steps in and receives judgment. To me, on the cross, and so this is this, and so I he's going to embody perfectly this kind of this move to repentance, right? And mm. and then, uh, but then he this then he says, "I'm going to send, spill up my spirit upon you, and you're going to keep doing this stuff." And to me, I, I just don't see it like stopping there. I see any time you see someone, you know, Doctor Martin Luther King Jr. is a great example of this. And most people. We would call him a prophet in the generic sense that anyone who speaks truth to power that but he's more of a pro he's that but he's also a prophet in the true sense that he had a, a mystical connection with god and a longing and a dream for the people of god and he communicated that grief and a longing for people to turn to repentance and that to me that that's the prophetic tradition it's mm -hmm. not just speak people being spiritual and activist at the same time 
it's it's coming you're a prophet moves from the place of divine grief like they mm. experience god's sorrow um which is you know <laughs> that yeah. seems rather esoteric and mystical but i also think that if you see oppression happen and compassion comes up inside you then that's from god so yeah, it's, it's all it's not like some sort of I don't think it's a special calling to be a prophet. I think we're all called to be a part of the prophetic tradition because it's Jesus's tradition. Mm. So I just yeah. said a lot. Yeah, <laughs> no. And there's there's so many questions. I'm I'm like, shoot, we could go the inerrancy route. We could go the atonement route. We could go the all sorts of different routes. But I think the the big question that, that I really have is as 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 I mean, I don't know if you came from an inerrancy background. I did. Um, but for for I mean, since we both did, looking at the prophets now, I mean, it doesn't take that much to read them and be like, "Wow, these people are are speaking truth to power." Mm-hmm. Like it, it really, I mean, at surface value, even just reading the text plainly, even if you're just taking it at its literal meaning, it's mm-hmm. very clear that it's speaking a, a a very profound truth to the people that are in not just religious power but political power. Um, yeah. But it, it's interesting even going through biblical education on a higher level past Sunday school, even in in my in an Old Testament class on the prophets, they said that the, the purpose of the prophets was uh, to tell the future and to tell what was happening now. And it and it, it was always but it was always more so towards the future. It was never really, let's say, in the present tense of what's going on. And and so I'm, I'm interested if, if you might have a theory or, or if you have an answer of, of where did we get it wrong? Like, where did the evangelical church in America miss that? Well, I mean, I think, I mean, there's a lot of ways I can go with this, but I, I tend to think evangelicalism started as a reactionary movement that really, mm-hmm. I mean, it's hard for me to say for sure, but I, my sense and feel of this is that evangelicalism is a reactionary, conservative reaction against liberal forces more than it is it ever was really motivated by people seeking after the heart of God. Hmm. I think there have always been evangelicals seeking after the heart of God. I like to believe that I'm one of them. And I honestly, I say this all the time, I don't think I somehow, I never really deconstructed in a hmm. way. I just, in my, from the way that I experienced it, I just went deeper and deeper. And I took the things that evangelicals and charismatics t- told me, but I took them seriously. And I think in a lot of ways, I took them more seriously than they did. And yeah. I just followed where it would go. I didn't, I never felt like I've turned my back on Jesus. My loyalty to Jesus hasn't really been in question. But I also realized, like, you know, I've noticed things that get in the way of Jesus. And some of these things that evangelicals yeah. do, do, like this idea of this, idolizing the Bible, this over uh, emphasis on certainty, um, this lack of political awareness. A lot of that stuff comes from reacting to fear. It's, it's very similar to the white backlash that you see with white people getting upset when any uh, black people in particular, but people in color in generally start making any social gains. Then all of a sudden mm. white people start feeling oppressed and their racism comes out, but they think it's justified because they feel threatened. Hmm. So then this culture of white supremacy kind of grows. So this Trump area era is just a lot of roots, a lot of 
pre-existing plants finally coming to fruit because white enough white people feel threatened. Like that's how I interpret it generally. And yeah. Flip that over to evangelicalism. When you have the religious establishment, the religious world losing its supremacy uh, to the, the modern era, you have this reactionary movement. And then within American history, you see uh, Christianity losing its place of privilege. Uh, you, it feels under threat from science. Uh, the, narrative, the Christian narrative is no longer central. So there's this reactionary recentering on a Christian narrative that that they built more of a sense of a fortress around it. Like it's unassailable. We have to over-articulate it the way white people over-articulate their whiteness and become white supremacy, white supremacists. It's like evangelicals are Christo supremacists <laughs> in a lot of ways. And yeah. I think that's where it happens. And then all of a sudden, uh, it's a foregone conclusion then that evangelicalism, in my mind, in America would become the political force that it became leading up to this very moment. In some ways, Trump is the least evangelical president we've ever had. In some ways, he's the most. Mm. It just depends on like, it depends on what you're looking at. He's the logical yeah. consequence of a threatened Christ, white Christian fragility <sighs> pushing back. Yeah. Oh yeah, man. That's a, that's a whole several hours of conversation that we could have on on just that alone of, of white fragility christian fragility i mean especially right now of, of what's going on in the news of oh my god yeah all these riots and everything holy cow but i think that that would lead me into, into my next question of uh, so obviously there's an election coming up um yeah it, it could go either way i mean i don't i'm i'm not a political analyst i mean i i have this feeling i mean i Personally, I don't like either candidate. Um, no, I'm not a fan. But <laughs> I, because of this, I have a bad feeling that we we could have another four years of the same thing. Um, but I, I mean, I, I hope something else happens, but I also don't want the other candidate. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want either. But it's the in Trump era evangelicalism, in Trump era America – um, for, for someone who wants to take the prophetic imagination seriously, the prophetic tradition, take up the helm of, of the Old Testament prophets, take up the helm of Jesus himself and say, I want to speak truth to power. What do we do? I have lots of thoughts about this. And I mean, this this is all speculative because it's not like I'm. I mean, I'm, I've had limited success trying to convince people of doing things differently in my life. Huh. And I can't ever really explain why me, why, why did I end up here and not uh, other people that were kind of grew up the way I grew up? Like, I don't know. But I, I'm increasingly convinced of something that I have yet to really try out and test out. And that mm-hmm. is this. I think, like, I think we people who have a similar framework, a way of seeing things, who feel a sense of deep spirituality, who they, they love Jesus, but they are absolutely committed to justice and liberation. I think we really need to figure out and learn how to preach the gospel well to white people. And I mean, because like, look, it's very possible that I'm, I'm missing something, but the way it often feels to me in radical and progressive spaces is that they, we, we're good at telling uh, white evangelicals 
that they're dumb and that they're uh, politically foolish. And then our response is to call them to do something different, to care about liberation, but in a way that totally relies upon them doing it altruistically. And what I mean is, hey, whiteness hurts people. Stop doing white supremacy because you're hurting people is the best we can do. And, you know, that should be good enough, but it's not. Because what at the end of the day, all this pathological oppression that comes out of white people, this spiritual malformation uh, that we have, uh, is rooted in a, a deep gnawing emptiness that has to be filled. And so we reach out for narratives that make sense. Like, we need to find someone, who do we blame for the fact that we feel this way? Like, so white supremacy, for example, is, you know, I said this just yesterday to someone, white supremacy hurts white people first, um, but it doesn't hurt white people the worst. It hurts us first because it teaches us that uh, this world exists for us and that if you're a good white person, you should be successful. And most of us mm -hmm. don't feel that way. And so we feel like failed white people and we have to blame somebody. So we look around and then here someone comes and says, you know what? It's those illegals fault. Or look at that welfare queen. And points out all these people you can blame for your emptiness and your feeling of being a failure. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you have this evangelical, like this mysticism. Like to me, there's not only just within evangelicalism, our political sphere has this sort of weird white mysticism to it. Like let's make America great again is in a great apocalyptic slogan. It's just yeah. drenched with the spirituality. And then if our response is like, hey, you're hurting people, you should knock it off. That's not enough. We need to preach the gospel. How did they get liberated? How can they mm -hmm. feel full? What does the presence of God look like to them? And if we, when we can create a narrative of liberation that actually makes a Trump-supporting white evangelical person feel like, you're right, that's what I long for. That's what I want. I accept this gospel and accept Jesus Christ in my heart. If we can get them to do that in a liberationist way, then we're talking. And I think that's what it'll take. Otherwise, the best we can do is try to take as much power as quickly as possible from white evangelicalism and white people as well. <laughs> now that's also thing that's the revolutionary path yeah uh, which white people still have a lot of power so I, I just don't think that's really tenable or would end very well right now <laughs> so, yeah and yeah. i love and i love white rural the white rural evangelicals i grew up with i want them to yeah. be transformed like the way i was but to me i never took this path out of altruism yeah it was because i felt jesus in it and i longed for that that's what we have to offer. So I feel like, I, I don't even know what your question is. I kind of started running off with this. But that's, yeah. I think, what we need to do in this moment is figure out, like, what does a powerful, spiritual, you know, full of Jesus, transformative gospel look like that's liberationist that we can speak to white people? Hmm. And when we can yeah. figure that out, then, oh, my God, that could be great. Or yeah. maybe not, because it's speculating. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, and that's the, that's the thing too. I mean, I mean, I guess the, the next question I would have for you would be, what is that gospel? I mean, I feel like that, that word is mm. thrown around. I mean, the, the gospel I was raised with was man, like you, you're this worm, like in, and God has all this anger stored up for you, yeah. but Jesus stepped in and, and took your whooping. So mm. now God's kind of cool with you. Like, I guess, but it's, be it's really because of Jesus, but they're the same person. So who knows? Like <laughs> at the end of the day, really. Um, yeah. But uh, before, 
before I get into that of what I mean, how, how does how does someone live? How does someone live out that gospel? Like, what is that gospel? I mean, obviously, it is about the liberation. Mm-hmm. But but what is it? How how does one? I mean, I hate like presenting the gospel, but how does one preach that gospel? Well, that's a good question. Like, because to me, that's the other evangelical thing is we boiled down it to a quick message. But that's mm-hmm. but Jesus didn't quite do that. He pointed towards things that didn't, if we're honest, don't really make a whole lot of sense by themselves. Like the mm-hmm. parable of a mustard seed. That's great. By itself, it's kind of meaningless. I mean, it's you have to thread it all together yeah. for it to make sense. And so, you know, this is where, you know, having people engage scripture, but then telling like, to, for me, the gospel starts with, in, in a way, it, it also starts with this bad news. But instead of like, you're, you're going to hell and Jesus has to take it for you. It's look, there's all these stories that have been put in your head by society that tell you you're this, that you're that. And you, and God wants to say this to you. It's a not this, but that kind of thing. And which Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount. So I just think it's just contextualizing that to white people or powerful people and calling them to it. And most people won't accept it. will go away like the rich young ruler, but some people will find life in it. And I think mm-hmm. it's at that point, like, this is, I guess, where I'm still a good charismatic. It's like, you're, it's not, you're not going to be able to convince people. They're either going to feel the spirit in it and start like moving towards it or not. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's because yeah, it's not like I can convince a Trump supporter that all of a sudden they should really celebrate trans rights. Like I don't see yeah. it happening quickly. <laughs> but all I know is that for me, it started with, I love Jesus so much. And I felt this tension in my soul because of people longing to go to war. And so I mm-hmm. turned to Jesus with that and I didn't have help. I kind of had to figure it out on my own, but, and with God's help, but, you know, can you imagine like if we were good at when we see people having this cognitive dissonance, like they're uncomfortable helping them through that and still helping them unravel that. It's really, uh, I think it's a lot of that kind of work, you know, but yeah. I think there is, there is gospel. There's good news to the fact, like, look, you're not a failure because you feel like a failure because you, we heard this is what the American dream is, but you know what? That's not that's not the kingdom of God. Mm. Good news is that you are acceptable, even yeah. if you don't live up to the American dream. Mm-hmm. But you have to let go of these things. And yeah, then, you know, and that's that sounds an awfully lot like God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, but just with it recalibrated. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know? it's it it's more oriented around freedom instead of this kind of weird gnostic mystery. It's just that he. He's created you to be free and and that's the whole purpose of all of it. And and I was even just talking to before we started recording to my wife about um this the 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 distancing of the the I mean I, I think in this present moment mm-hmm. I have a lot of problems with penal substitutionary atonement, but I think in this first moment or in this very present moment as I watch as, as our black brothers and sisters are Mm -hmm. killed in the streets with no repercussions for their murderers, Mm -hmm. I, and Christians are completely silent and you look and I'm beginning to realize that it's because the gospel that's been preached, it's only been 
Jesus died for your sins so that you could be justified before God and one day go to this other place. And don't worry about anything else right now other than telling other people that they're living life wrong instead of recognizing that Jesus was an indigenous colored slave who was Mm -hmm. killed because he was a threat to the socioeconomic and religious powers. Mm -hmm. And so it's just this weird distancing. And so I guess what I'd love to ask you, I mean, there, I have other que- other questions to ask, but I think especially in this present moment of having Ahmad Arbery, that mm. story kind of breaking yeah. in this in this week, and it's it's crazy because it happened months ago, but it's just now breaking. Yeah. Um, and, and the the riots about staying at home, and and the the I don't know if you've seen this whole pandemic thing going on, but oh I, my gosh, this it's. So disheartened by the people that I thought were a little more rational, like really buying into it. Yeah. Well, that's, what's crazy about it was to me, I mean, I'm, I'm a very, um, I'm very quick to post stories. Like I'm very quick to have a response. And that was one of those things where I was like, Nope, I'm not saying anything like that. For, for whatever reason in my gut, I was like, I know something is wrong here because they're saying all these things as if they're fact, but they're not actually citing their sources. Like there's no anything. And so I, I guess my question to you, Mark, as someone who has dedicated their life and their ministry to this prophetic tradition, what what do you think is the prophetic? I, I mean, not to get too Pentecostal in here, but what do you think the the prophetic word is for this moment? That's a good question. I mean, I'm not you know, I'm not sure. Like hmm. it's, that's a big question. I mean, I feel like I, cause I'm, I'm feeling like we've, we had black lives matter happening for years now, mm-hmm. you know, and I, you know, I've been involved with, you know, interstate shutdowns and had all sorts of heated conversations and try to explain things and it didn't go anywhere. And I just don't know, uh, you know, the, I know the easy, the quick answer to that is whenever, uh, you know, a, a black person, in this case, a black man is killed. Um, it's Jesus is being crucified all over again. Christ mm. is present. Like to me, that's true. But I don't know how to help people see that truth mm. um, because it's it's so entangled. So so I don't know, like what what the, the prophetic word for this moment is, what the gospel is for this moment, except for it's it. I feel grief. And for some reason, I don't understand. Um there's all these layers that keep most white America from seeing the full humanity of this man. So that there's already justifications, right? It's hmm. justifications that happen. And to me, that's, that's a type of alienation, right? Hmm. Like uh, Jesus talks about sin. Karl Marx talks about alienation. I'm going to use Karl Marx here for a second, but like <laughs> we all feel alienated. We are alienated from God. We're alienated from the land. We're alienated from one another. And those of us who have more roots or sense of community that comes from a, a deep story, like feel less alienated. So uh, to me, that's part of the power of the, the gospel that comes from the black tradition. It comes from a rootedness and a remembering of a story. Um, white people are the most alienated people on the planet in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And so it's two scared white men killing a black man who's jogging that's coming from a place of real alienation. So they don't know that. And what they're doing is they felt, you know, if we take them at their word, they felt afraid. I don't have a reason to doubt that. I think 
scared white people do all kinds of horrific shit that doesn't make any yeah. sense. Um, but the, the good news is you don't, they don't have to be that way. They don't have to feel that way. But, you know, it's just like the same thing. You Growing up, you were told you, people really made sure they convinced you all the way growing up that you're a horrible sinner to the point that you felt worthless enough to one day cry out to God to keep you from hell. Like that's, that's the evangelical path. I mean, there's better versions of that within evangelicalism, but that's the, that's the grosser form of evangelicalism. And it takes a long cultivation for someone then to be ready to accept Jesus, to forgive them, to, you know, accept Jesus as sacrifice so that they won't have to go to hell. And like in this case, I think there's this slow process of helping people wake up to how alienated they are so that they can, in, in a very similar but more powerful way, cry out to God to help them find a sense of unity and connection with God, with the land, with one another, and that these, this alienation can be torn down so that people, we can all be uh, working together for mutual liberation. Like to me, that's, but somehow someone has to wake up to the fact that they're alienated and they'd be able to name it. So yeah. that's the hard thing. That's the place that white America in general doesn't want to look because they'll have to admit that they've been scapegoating people and they're part of an oppressive system. It's just like Jesus said, you know, it's not an accident that Jesus told the rich people to sell everything they have and give it to the poor. It's not because that was just their idol. It's because it was the systemic force of oppression and Jesus wanted to call them to Jubilee and they couldn't do mm. that with their wealth. It's the same thing. We can't, unless we let go of these things, these oppressive things, our, our commitment to the structures of oppression, our role in a society of, that's an imperial society, unless we're willing to let go of all that, uh, we're not going to be able to see the kingdom of God. That's kind of, yeah. That's pretty much pretty Bible right there, I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, the, the ironic part of that is that they don't teach you that in Sunday school. It, it's all the, the application of that story is always, Oh, it's because it's their idol. It, it's, it's only that yes. it's only a heart problem and not an exterior conflict of interest or problem for the kingdom of heaven. And, and Mark, I, I've, I've had a few conversations over the last few days with, people about uh eschatology and about uh new jerusalem and, and about things like that and and we hadn't haven't gotten to it yet but i know that um you you would consider yourself a christian anarchist um mm -hmm. and obviously with the center for uh prophetic imagination and all of these th these things that, that you're doing to bring about the kingdom of god in, in a tangible way that is spirit led, but also scripture. Uh, I don't want to say oriented, but scripture influenced. Um, mm -hmm. It's part of the, it's, it's fodder for the imagination for sure. It's like part of yeah. our, part of our imagination has to be shaped by this bigger story that it tells. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I guess my, my final question in, in closing, um, what is new Jerusalem? Like when, when you close your eyes and imagine this, this idea where the the geometry is perfect and and everything is equal and the gates are always open what is new jerusalem mm -hmm. you know it's funny like uh that's the kind of question i don't usually try or even 
want to answer because to me, and this I could go into all kinds of reasons and angles for this, but um, I'll just say it this way. There, there's two kind of, you can slice spirituality into two halves. One is the cataphatic tradition and one is the apophatic. Cataphatic is uh, kind of called positive spirituality. What can we positively say about God? What should we be doing and thinking? And then the, mm. and then the other apophatic is negative theology where you can't speak. Anything you say about God is a lie because God cannot be named, right? It's like this, that's mm-hmm. the type of the deeper mystical tradition. I say that to set up this idea, like, to me, I often feel, and this connects a lot with my anarchism, that there's a danger in having a utopian vision that you then try to live up to, Mm. because then it kind of confines and controls. And to me, the anarchic, apophatic, mystical kind of thing is just to notice, like, I don't always know what liberation looks like, but I long for it, and I need to pay attention to that. I long for connection. I long for... uh, connection and presence with people. I long for healthy land. I long for these things in a broad way, but I don't want to like blueprint what I think it's supposed to look like. So, but having said that, at the very least, I know and this, it means not ha- that no one should ever have structural power over anyone else. To me, it looks like closer to pure democracy than anything we've had in, in my life. It means mm. a restoration of the land where we live in reciprocity, which is totally possible. I don't think we have to be consumers of the land. Yeah. I think it means um, abundance because there's more than enough. I think it means that we <laughs> uh, like stand against in any sort of power that comes up that threatens human life and say no to it. Like it's just, it's kind of all the hippie stuff. But yeah. It's, I don't even know how, like what it's supposed to look like. I don't even know how you could know, but I know what it isn't. <laughs> yeah. And I know that yeah. there's lots of, there's, there'll be lots of love and connection and there won't be alienation. Hmm. I guess so that's kind of, that's my non-answer to that answer in a way. Yeah. No, I, I think that's a beautiful answer. And I think especially going into, I mean, more mystical traditions and even just into traditions like Eastern Orthodoxy with, with people like Brad Jersak. Mm-hmm. And and looking at kind of the the idea to not have theological dogmas brought out of revelation, mm-hmm. and to kind of just read it as it is, and not necessarily formulate theological doctrines out of it that are not inside of the creeds. But mm-hmm. one of one of the things I've definitely been thinking about in regards to New Jerusalem is maybe the reason that it is illustrated as this kind of not necessarily intangible incomprehensible thing but this very abstract like who who makes a city where it's like all these fine jewels ornating the the gates and Mm -hmm. and all like it's just a very uh fantastical idea and maybe john wrote it that way for that specific reason to you can tell what it is here but because of the fact that you can tell what it is you can also definitely sure as hell tell what it's not Mm -hmm. and gosh that that's that's amazing i i had never thought about it that way Mm -hmm. yeah and i think we i think that's good i think that's well put i mean if you if you hadn't like if you hadn't to pin me down i mean i know (laughs) which societies are better than other ones like 
I've never been to the Chiapas, but like the Zapatistas in Mexico are one of the better examples of like doing the stuff. Although, of course, that's controversial, but they're they basically declared their autonomy for Mexico in 1990, January 1st, 1994. Uh, they have a rotating council, like people serve on a council and it rotates. Everyone has to be in the council at some point. The general mm-hmm. leadership of the communities there and the Chiapas are um, it's matriarchal. It's elder women. They're indigenous. It's an indigenous society. They're trying to do their own schooling. They, for a while, I don't know if they still do this. They would export their own coffee, like, but then they'd collectivize the profits of that. So it was this kind of not quite anarchist, not quite socialist, indigenous kind of like, but also strangely mystical and poetical at the same time. Hmm. So I, I, you know, I think they're worthy of of looking at um, as a real life example. And there have been other communities, you know, where they really value equality and egalitarianism, but then not in just some sort of weird mechanical way. Like, yeah, I don't, I don't like that. I don't like authoritarian, like people point to the Amish and stuff like that as like some sort of utopia. I'm like, that's too authoritarian. Um, Mm. People point to other communities where it's forced egalitarianism, where it's almost like cutting down every blade of grass that sticks up too far. And that's not it either. It's more organic Mm. and. It's more organic than that, I think. But yeah, yeah. There, there, there's freedom in it. It's, mm-hmm. it's not just a, a forced obedience to something. Yeah. Well, Mark, where can people find you and, and what you're doing? And, and are you working on anything at the? I mean, obviously, I know quarantine for this virus is kind of, uh, not debilitating, but it's prohibiting people from maybe being as active as they were before. Yeah. Um, and hopefully leading into something better after yeah um but what um are, are you working on anything right now or and if so and if not where can people find what you are doing or have done or are continuing to do yeah i mean if you go to the center for prophetic imagination website just google that um you can find that there um but yeah i'm not doing a lot right now well i am i'm not doing my usual thing so i've been doing uh a daily kind of live feed on Facebook most most weekdays at 10 a.m. So if you look for, uh, you look at the Center for Prophetic Imagination page there, you can see that come up. Um, and I'm doing mm-hmm. like, I'm doing a, f- a film course right now, but it's it's already full. So I, p- telling people about it now would be too late. Um, and so I'll probably do more things like that. I'll probably do more online type offerings if this continues on. And, but hopefully it won't. <laughs> Yeah, much longer because, uh, you know, we have retreats coming up or we had retreats that were planned and that cancel. So a lot of it's that sort of thing. Retreats, workshops, I had some speaking stuff. It's all kind of like just it's all sadly gone away for now. Uh, Mm. The other thing I'm working on, what I'm excited about is I raised a bunch of money on Kickstarter a while back to do to write a first of a four part post apocalyptic squirrel novel. Mm. (laughs) <laughs> uh, so I've been working on that a little bit too. Um, so people can, I think, can, can, can wait for that. It'll probably be another year and a half before they have a chance of seeing it. Oh, dang. Is there any story pitch or are you, are you keeping everything pretty under wraps right now? It's a little under wraps right now. Okay. Yeah. I thought I, I thought I saw a squirrel on your website and I was like, what is that? Like what, what's going yeah. on? Cause next to your books. And I was like, I wonder what that is. And so I'm, I'm, I'm assuming it has something to do with that. 
Yeah, and you know, people think of here squirrel, and they think, oh, it's a little cutesy. But if you ever read Watership Down? Oh yeah. You know, a lot of people read that thinking it's a cute rabbit story to the kids, and it's it's apocalyptic and it's disturbing. Yeah. It's more like that set in a kind of a, a kind of a post-apocalyptic fantasy kind of series, but mm. it happens at centers on animals for a good reason. It's not like I'm just wanting to rip off C.S. Lewis. There's reasons for this. It's basically yeah. it's an eco fantasy. Uh, you know, I can it probably doesn't ruin too much if I tell people like this is ha- after uh, humanity has collapsed. Mm. So this is like what happens after we're long gone, kind of a story. So it's a bit of a cautionary tale, but with magic and squirrels and other woodland creatures. <laughs> sounds like sounds like my kind of book in, in the most genuine way I can say that. I'm I'm excited for that. And anyone who's who's listening, go check that out. Go check out his website. Uh, look at look at the center that he runs and, and the books that he's written. Um, and and before we close, I I always try to end this uh, podcast that. It, it, it is a podcast about spiritual practices and, and how to live life and practicality. And one of the things that I genuinely believe is lacking in the church today is, is a practice of, of encouragement of one another. Mm-hmm. And so, Mark, I just really want to uh, encourage you and say thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for um, keeping this prophetic tradition alive in, in a Christian culture that is not friendly towards it. Mm-hmm. Um, which is so tragic, but, but really true. Um, thank you for being captivated by Jesus and being faithful to him, uh, in, in a way that is, that is true to Jesus in his most pure essence. And the fact that he was countercultural and came to show that the systems that we had established don't work, that, mm-hmm. that this isn't going to continue on forever. And that's the best thing possible. And so Mark, again, like from the bottom of my heart, just thank you for what you do. Thank you. And thanks for, thanks for doing this. And uh, it's been a good conversation. I've enjoyed it. Oh, me too.